What is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Hello, everybody. Big thanks to Shannon for recommending today's case. Some of you guys might be familiar with it because there was an HBO documentary that came out on this case about three years ago called Murder on Middle Beach. I actually didn't watch it at the time. It was one of those that we just never got around to watching. Yeah. So, um, but maybe you guys did. But for everybody else, maybe this will be a new story for you and then you could watch the docuseries after. Absolutely. Go and check out that docuseries. Also, I just wanted to mention that we do have a subscription bonus episode series on Apple Podcasts now. So if you want to go and subscribe to that, basically we've had Patreon for many years now and we're just making it easier for Apple users to be able to subscribe to those bonus episodes. So if you are an Apple user, you can uh, subscribe on Apple now. Yes, but remember, those are bonus episodes that you would not have access to otherwise. So that's not our regular content coming out. I know we're saying this a lot, but there's a lot of people who are just still not getting it. We are not putting our show behind a paywall. Those are specifically bonus episodes. And we've been doing that for almost four years now somewhere else. So you're not missing anything. We're not making you pay for anything unless you want to. Thank you, everybody, who has shown interest, though, in our bonus episodes. Just remember, if it says bonus, it's a bonus. If it's not, we're still doing two a week. Nothing is changing. Thank you very much. I think that pretty much cleared that up. All right, guys, this is episode 289 of Going West. So let's get into it. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. It's It's been 12 and a half years since Madison Hamburg last spoke to his mom, Barbara, who was murdered in their Madison home on March 3rd, 2010. Barbara Hamburg's body was found by one of her children in the yard of the home she rented, according to police. Today, the medical examiner's office said Hamburg died as a result of blunt force trauma and stab wounds. Obviously, we have a great handle on this, and uh, officers are working around the clock on it. As for the person who murdered my mom, uh, I just want to know why. And he has been trying to find out those answers for years, more recently in 2020, with an HBO series, Murdered on Middle Beach, that examines Madison's journey to try to solve the case. I just have this vision of her kind of finding her way out onto the front yard. I just hope they catch the person that did it. Barbara Beach was born on April 29, 1961 in New Haven, Connecticut, and was one of six children born to Barbara and Richard Beach, alongside siblings Christopher, Conway, 
Catherine, Lewis, and Richard. As far back as childhood, Barbara was described as a bright light and a breath of fresh air. According to her obituary, she was, quote, truly too good for this world. Barbara absolutely loved to spend time outdoors and maintained a very active lifestyle. She grew up close to her extended family and also had many beloved friends, so she was always surrounded by people who cared about her. But as the adventurous and fun person she was, she was known to make friends anywhere she went as well. In 1989, when she was around 28 years old, Barbara married successful businessman Jeffrey Hamburg, and the couple settled in Alpharetta, Georgia. Her husband Jeffrey was promoted to CEO of the Southern Company, which is a gas and electric utility company, that same year. Barbara and Jeffrey would go on to have two children, a son named Madison and a daughter named Barbara Alexandra, who just went by Allie, so that's what we're going to call her. And Jeffrey also had a child from a previous relationship named Brian. Barbara's family remembers Jeffrey as charming, charismatic, and funny, and that they were quite the power couple together. They loved to travel, they doted on their children, and they of course enjoyed Jeffrey's multi-million dollar salary to the fullest. Parenting came easy and it came naturally to Barbara. I mean, she lit up around her children and was a warm and gentle mother. She just felt like they gave her purpose. In her daughter Allie's words, she said, quote, she had a super infectious laugh. She made people happy. Everyone loved her. Barbara's son Madison called her, quote, a superhero kind of archetypal mother figure and remembered, quote, our house was where all the misfit kids would come and hide out. And my mom was always like a mother to everybody. After years in the state of Georgia, the Hamburgs eventually decided that they wanted to head back to Barbara's roots in Connecticut. So they purchased a beautiful home on Middle Beach Road West in Madison, Connecticut. Not to be confused with Barbara's son, Madison. Yeah, there's a lot of double uh, names in this episode, uh, I realized. There really is. Like, Barbara's parents are literally Richard and Barbara. And then they have a daughter, Barbara, and a son, Richard. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And then Barbara named her daughter Barbara Alexandra, but luckily she goes by Allie. Makes this a little easier. Yeah. So, Madison is nestled on the Long Island Sound, about a 25-minute drive from Barbara's native city of New Haven. The property backed onto a golf course and was just steps from the beach. So it was incredibly picturesque. But things began to go downhill for the family when Barbara's husband Jeffrey came under fire for unethical practices at work. According to the case file, Jeffrey was being accused of brokering illegal deals outside of the country. While this was never confirmed, Jeffrey did travel frequently, reportedly possessing five passports. But Jeffrey called the allegations appalling and took his former employer to court, suing them for defamation, and he actually won $3.5 million. Though something in him changed after that, and Jeffrey apparently became absent and distant. He was traveling so much that Barbara claimed that she felt like a single mother. So in 2002, she filed for divorce from her husband of 13 years while in her early 40s. Barbara maintained primary custody of the children, as well as their residence on Middle Beach Road. And when Jeffrey wasn't traveling, he would stay nearby at a luxury condo or at a residence on Park Avenue in New York City, and he would see his kids Madison and Allie for visits. 
Though she kept it quiet, Barbara was struggling with alcoholism and maybe as a way to deal with the strain on her marriage and the massive change in her personal life, though that's obviously just speculation. Now, her father, Richard, who was often referred to by his nickname Sandy, we're going to call him Sandy, also struggled with alcoholism. And after becoming sober, Sandy had actually established himself as a pillar in the Alcoholics Anonymous community. His obituary credits him with inspiring hundreds, if not thousands, of people in AA. And it reads, quote, On December 7th, 1964, Sandy stopped drinking and began a deep and lasting belief in the spiritual power of AA. Sandy became an inspired speaker in AA meetings large and small. He spoke about the principles of AA with a special blend of humor and wisdom all over the world. He created and taught an AA spiritual recovery workshop for men known as the Far Corners. It says, uh, true to its name, men traveled near and far to learn from Sandy. So taking inspiration from her father, Barbara quit drinking in 2005, which was about three years after her divorce. And she definitely leaned on the support of Alcoholics Anonymous as well. At the time of her murder, she had spent five years in AA, where she found a lot of camaraderie and just a real sense of purpose in attending and leading meetings. And her son Madison actually still goes to a meeting once a year on Valentine's Day, which is Barbara's sober anniversary, to pick up her annual chip. So while they were no longer together, Barbara and Jeffrey saw each other frequently in court over disputes about finances and their children. Barbara claimed that Jeffrey kept missing both his alimony and child support payments, while Jeffrey claimed that Barbara was defaulting on the mortgage. He told their son Madison later that Barbara had a dark side few people knew of, saying, quote, Your mother was a very complicated person. Things that you may or may not have seen or witnessed or were even cognizant of. She had a life that I had no idea she had. But he didn't elaborate on what he meant by this. I think we might actually know if you're thinking the same thing I am, which we yeah. are going to get into. Yes, we will. So unfortunately, while Barbara did her best to provide for her children with the most stable home possible in the midst of a tumultuous divorce, the kids bore the brunt of all of this. Like his grandfather and mother before him, Madison began escaping the uncertainty of his home life with substance abuse and wound up getting expelled from his high school. Madison's guidance counselor at the time remembered him having a strained relationship with his dad and that Jeffrey was controlling and angry. The guidance counselor even wrote a letter to the court stating that Madison did not want to have to stay at his dad's house. So tensions within the family were rising and there was no end in sight. Because in early 2010, Barbara and Jeffrey were still embroiled in a conflict over money that he owed to Barbara as well as to his kids. So despite the trouble at home, Madison, who was very gifted and creative, had gotten into the Savannah College of Art and Design back in Georgia. And nurturing his early love of filmmaking, his parents had purchased a video camera for him one year for Christmas, and Madison had just fallen in love with it. In March of 2010, Madison was well into his freshman year of college and was just thrilled to be back in the South, as well as getting a break from, you know, the, the turbulence between his parents back in Connecticut. On the morning of March 3rd, 2010, 
Allie had gotten out of school early, so her aunt, Conway Beach, agreed to pick her up. Now, we're going to talk about Conway a bunch in the rest of this episode. And just so you guys know, she is the sister of Barbara. And remember, Barbara has five siblings. Conway is one of them. And uh, Conway is Madison and Allie's aunt. Yeah, and the reason why Conway was there to pick up Allie that day is because they couldn't get a hold of Barbara. Right. I mean, so basically what happened is they couldn't get a hold of Barbara, like Keith is saying. And then they arrived at the house, at Allie and Barbara's house, around 11 a.m. But they just knew immediately that something wasn't right. I mean, they were calling her a bunch. They just could not get in touch with her. But it's also said that Conway was living at the house at the time as well with Barbara and Allie. So we definitely question that. But anyway, back to when they get home. So when Allie and Conway pulled into the driveway, Barbara's car was still parked out front. Her keys were hanging in the front door, but the door was still locked. They called for her inside the house, but it was dead silent. And then... Allie heard her aunt Conway screaming from outside, so she ran to the backyard to find her. And on the side of the house in front of some bushes, Conway saw couch cushions covering something up. When she lifted one up, she saw what she described as, quote, mushed up hair and blood. So she kind of relaxed at this point for a second, just assuming it was an animal that had been attacked and maybe discarded there by a predator. But when she pulled back the second cushion, she had the horrifying realization that it was her sister, Barbara. At 11.25 a.m., they dialed 911 to report the murder of 48-year-old Barbara Beach Hamburg. So let's talk about this for a second because it's pretty weird. We have Barbara's car in the driveway. Her keys are in the door, but the door is not quite unlocked yet. And then she is under couch cushions or under outdoor couch cushions outside. Yeah, in the backyard. Yeah, in the yard garden area. So it's just weird that, like, I'm trying to see the scene unfold and it's kind of hard to picture. Yeah, it is because you would assume that if she did make it to the front door, she put the keys in. If she was attacked, then she would have been attacked and, like, brought to the backyard to be killed because they didn't go through the house. Right, meaning she was just killed outside? Like, it's it's pretty bizarre. Unless, you know, the killer had gotten the keys and, and locked the door themselves and left the keys in the door. Well, by all accounts, it does appear that she was killed outside. And I also just want to tell you guys, I know we mentioned that there was a golf course behind her house. It's like past this little body of water. Um, but it, the house is very private. It's up a driveway. So there's no neighbors that can be seen when you're standing in or outside of the house directly. Like it, it is a nice little private piece of property. Yeah, it's it's slightly secluded. Um, So it looks like, you know, the neighbors aren't super close by. But that also is important to note because it's like, well, then who would have gone up that driveway and killed her that morning? True. Yeah. It must have been somebody that she knew. Absolutely. So Barbara's son, Madison, remembered the day like a bad dream. He said, quote, I was at Chick-fil-A with a bunch of friends and my phone was broken that day. One of my best friends reached out to another friend who was with me to say that my sister really needed to talk to me. I thought she had gotten into trouble or something. And when I called, she said, Mom's dead. She was crying. 
She said someone killed her. My initial response, which I now know is a part of grief, was, that can't be right, she's not dead. Put someone else on the phone. This isn't funny. Meanwhile, at the nearby courthouse, Barbara had been expected that morning and had missed a court hearing in the case against her ex-husband, Jeffrey. At the time, Jeffrey stood accused of owing $153,000 to Barbara and stealing $324,000 from the trust and college funds that belonged to Allie and Madison. Now, according to Barb's lawyer, Richard Callahan, he said, quote, there was no question he did not have the money on March 3rd. Barbara had been expected at 9.30 that morning, but she had never shown up. Now, some reports indicate that Jeffrey had been in as much as a million dollars worth of debt at this time. He had also quietly filed for bankruptcy in June of 2009. So that was the year before Barbara was murdered. But back to the crime scene for a second. So an autopsy revealed that Barbara had died of blunt force trauma and sharp force injury. And she had been brutally stabbed and beaten. And of course, her death was ruled a homicide. Now, this was a time of great loss for the Beach family because they actually lost Barbara's sister, Catherine, just two months later. And not only them, but their picturesque, very affluent seaside town just really reeled from this shocking murder because, of course, they're wondering if they have a killer amongst them. Allie broke the news to her brother Madison, like Heath explained to us, who took leave from school in Georgia to just move home to Connecticut and be closer to family. Madison said later, quote, My mom was my best friend, and there's not a day that goes by that I don't feel her absence. With a crime so brutal as Barbara's murder, it seemed obvious, like we said, that the murderer had to have known their victim. So police focused on Barbara's inner circle. And to no surprise, many acknowledged that her ex-husband Jeffrey seemed to be the only one with anything to gain from her demise. But seeming to get ahead of the accusations, Jeffrey obtained legal counsel immediately upon hearing the news of her death. While police never named him as an official suspect, his attorney said he, quote, clearly was. And there were a ton of unsubstantiated rumors, like in any case, but one here that was very persistent claims that Jeffrey's phone was off the entire day of the murder, which just doesn't look good for him because, like, why else would that be? Especially in modern age, in 2010, when you can track cell phones. It just always looks weird in a case when someone's phone is turned off at the time that someone's murdered. I mean, absolutely. But also, you know, he's supposed to be in court that day as well. So it's like, like, why would his phone be turned off? I mean, maybe because he was in court. Right. You could say that, but they, she didn't show up. So there wasn't, there wasn't a hearing anyway. So having your phone off, especially what if your lawyer needs to contact you, you know what I mean? Like it, it doesn't, it just doesn't look good anyway. And not to say that just because his phone is off means that he's behind this, but it just looks bad. So also another kind of bizarre thing is that an unknown caller had phoned Barbara that day to tell her that her court appearance with Jeffrey on the day of her murder had been moved to 2 p.m., which would leave more time for her to be attacked. Well, police requested Jeffrey's DNA and he permitted this, 
but the Beach family feels police fumbled the handling of the DNA to the point that it may be unusable. Just hate when that happens. Yeah, and according to Barbara's sister Conway, Madison police encouraged the family to wait for a new crime lab to be unveiled, which was promised to be one of the best in the country. But shortly after it opened, it had lost its accreditation. Not only that, but by then, the DNA evidence gleaned from Barbara's body and the crime scene had been idle for weeks, if not months. And Conway suspects that it may have been stored improperly, as investigators had put all their eggs in one basket with this new crime lab. Barbara was cremated quickly, which obviously is extremely unfortunate in this investigation, just a week after her death. So there was no more DNA evidence to speak of. It's always really frustrating in murder cases when someone is cremated quickly because you just, you can't come back from that. Yeah. And especially considering her murder wasn't anywhere near solved when they did it. And I can understand if the family wants to like honor certain wishes or give their loved one a proper send off, but who knows how much it could have helped if they would have just waited or if they had buried her instead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's just really, really unfortunate. So as is typical in murder cases, the entire Hamburg family was questioned in connection with Barbara's murder. When police asked her son Madison who he thought committed the murder, Madison said that he didn't know. In the garden near where Barbara's body was found, there was a cigarette linked to her son Madison. But I mean, that absolutely could have been from a visit prior to the murder. Under Barbara's fingernails, there was DNA that was, as police described, of male Hamburg lineage. But they said that it was not a direct match to Jeffrey. I, what I want to know is if it wasn't a direct match because the DNA sample that they had taken wasn't a good enough sample or because it wasn't, like, concretely was not Jeffrey. Because if, if they're under her fingernails, there is male Hamburg lineage DNA. Like, who would that be from? We know the only two people that would have been in the house that day with her that are in the family are women, Conway and Allie. So when would she have gotten male Hamburg lineage DNA under her fingernails, especially under her fingernails, not just on her shoulder or, you know, like under her fingernails? Right. That means that implies that she had possibly scratched somebody yeah, and in, gotten in that defense. DNA. Yeah, exactly. So... That's pretty alarming that they're not kind of putting two and two together there. You know what I mean? But that's why I want to know if the sample was was strong enough or what the situation is with that. If we can concretely say it was not Jeffrey's or if they just don't think it is. Or it did, like you said, it didn't appear that it was a direct match. But very interesting. Yeah, it definitely is. So in one of Madison's interviews with police, they asked if he suspected his father, Jeffrey Hamburg. And Madison said, quote, I've never seen him be violent toward anybody. The officer then asked, controlling? To which Madison responded, he's very controlling and manipulative and selfish. But the question remained if he was capable of doing something so heinous to his ex-wife, who seemed to be beloved by everyone but him. And that's the question that Madison himself set out to answer. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. 
Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. My absolute favorite app is Audible, because not only do they have thousands of incredible podcasts, including ours, but they also have an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. Like from celebrity memoirs, to motivation, to business, to my favorite, mysteries and thrillers. Audible really is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases that can include eerie soundscapes, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Right now, I'm listening to this unputdownable thriller fiction called Just Another Missing Person by Jillian McAllister, which I think you guys would love. To try Audible free for 30 days, visit audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. That's audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Looking to save on delivery? DashPass is your door to $0 delivery fees and more on DoorDash. And right now, using code GOINGWEST24, you can get 50% off up to $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change, terms apply. Daphne and I use DoorDash constantly to order lunch or dinner or even groceries. And that's why we love using our DashPass. 
Because it's the most affordable way to get anything in your area delivered right to your door. I mean, come on. DashPass pays for itself in two orders on average, making delivery even more worth it. And that's why we use it so often. And it also gives you special access to exclusive promotions and member-only menu items, all for just $9.99 a month. Get more from delivery for less. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. Use code GOINGWEST24 to get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change, terms apply. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. After taking a year off of school to heal from the sudden and tragic loss of his mother, Madison returned to the Savannah College of Art and Design in Georgia with the vision for a new project, an homage to his mother. In 2013, so about three years after Barbara's murder and during Madison's final year of college, Madison was completing a documentary film class. Now, he had been quiet on the details of his circumstances, explaining that he, quote, didn't want to be the kid whose mom was murdered. Like, he wasn't telling people at school that this had happened to him because... Right. He didn't want people to know him as just that. Exactly. But a class project that he had been working on fell through and he needed a subject. So Madison was inspired to dive into his mother's life. He explained that while he did want to see her case solved, of course... That wasn't necessarily the objective of the project. Instead, he called it, quote, a documentary for anyone who has a mom. And while navigating what Madison called the darkest time of his life, his film kind of offered this solace from the unthinkable loss of the person who meant the most to him in the world. Madison explained, quote, film has always been like a coping mechanism for me. My parents told me that they were getting divorced the day before Christmas when I was 11. And on Christmas Day, they bought me a Handycam. And from that moment on, I sort of lost myself in just filming the world around me. It was sort of escapism at that point, but it helped me develop a language for communicating a lot of stuff that I can't properly articulate. For eight years, while his mom's case grew cold, Madison recorded interviews, conducted his own investigation, and turned the mirror on members of his own family, questioning their potential involvement. As the footage stacked up and the documentary basically took on a life of its own, Madison ironically never even completed the assignment because there was so much ground to cover. Now, even though he didn't complete this project, his professor did award him an A anyway and insisted that Madison complete the project, and he decided that that's exactly what he was going to do. Talks with both police and members of his family seemed to lead him toward the same suspect, his own father. But Jeffrey was avoidant every time the subject was brought up. 
When Madison questioned whether he could speak with Jeffrey's lawyers, Jeffrey answered, Madison, I just can't discuss it. Madison responded calmly, Dad, can I ask you some questions? To which Jeffrey responded, no, let's just leave it at that. Which to me is really weird because like this is your son. You're talking about the murder of his mother. You think that Jeffrey would be um, just denying it a lot more and saying, why would I do that? Of course I didn't do that. Like, why is he not giving him, not giving him what he, what he wants to hear, but what he should be told if you are in fact innocent. Yeah, maybe just kind of putting his mind at ease even. Yeah, he just has all these like weird cryptic answers. Yeah. So in 2016, six years after the murder of his mother and three years after embarking on his documentary film project, Madison, now estranged from his father, met Jeffrey for a drink in a bar in New York City. While he was wearing a microphone underneath his clothing just hoping to sneakily record an interview, Madison asked his father outright, did you have anything to do with it? And Jeffrey responded, I'm not going to talk to you about the murder, before telling him definitively, I'm not capable of murdering anyone. But let's go back for a moment. The year after Barbara was murdered, in September of 2011, Jeffrey was arrested on charges of grand larceny for stealing from his daughter Allie's college fund. Then, on May 10th, 2012, he was again arrested for failing to pay Barbara's child support and alimony payments, but he was released on bail both times. While Jeffrey has appeared to be the only publicly vilified person of interest, Madison poses multiple theories as to what could have happened to his mother. One is her involvement in a multi-level marketing scheme called gifting tables. So gifting tables began in 2008, a couple years before Barbara was murdered, and was primarily operated out of Connecticut. It was kind of presented under the guise of being like a sisterhood for women in their communities, almost like a sorority, I guess you could say. So the women-only gatherings would start as lavish tea parties and dinner parties thrown by a host, and everyone would recruit a new member. Now, these new members were required to bring a gift of $5,000 each. Once you joined and contributed your $5,000, you moved into the position called appetizer. You were then asked to bring two more people who would also contribute $5,000, which would bring you to the soup and salad level. They would then recruit two women of their own to bring the cash gift to the next event, and you would move to the entree level. And then finally, the dessert level, where all eight recruits beneath you would give you their $5,000, leaving you with like a tidy sum of $40,000. And remember, this was during a time of... Um, the recession? The recession, exactly. So people were kind of finding out ways to make money through all of this like turmoil. Right, which is, this is just such a weird way to do it. And it, and it really did look like some terrible Ponzi scheme, which I'm going to get into. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, duh. And people were convicted, so. It's true, and I'll go into that now. So it was founded by Donna Bello, who was a Connecticut woman in her 50s at the time, and the group just masqueraded as a woman's empowerment and self-help group, but it seemed more like a way to buck the recession, and in some cases, promise that a portion of the profits would be donated to charity when it probably wasn't. In 2013, Donna was actually convicted of conspiracy because of gifting tables. 
Investigators argued that this was a simple Ponzi scheme hiding behind the veil of sisterhood and charity to avoid taxation. And she was sentenced to four years in prison for the organization, as was Barbara's own aunt, Jill Platt. Well, what's interesting here is that Jill Platt was the one who first recruited Barbara to gifting tables, but Barbara seemed to be flourishing on her own. Apparently, at the time that she was killed, Barbara was in the dessert phase of the scheme and thus was poised to receive $40,000. Barbara had also been recruiting new women for gifting tables from her Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Some have questioned if her death was in retaliation due to her involvement in the scheme, especially since there was a crossover from AA. One theory posed the idea that a Madison police officer's family had lost money in the scheme and their inability to solve the crime was willful ignorance as a means of revenge. There's another interesting theory that's the idea that someone, likely Jeffrey Hamburg, had hired a hitman to kill Barbara. This would prove Jeffrey's claim that he doesn't have the ability to kill someone, but it would also clear up the financial dispute that he was waiting in the courtroom to resolve on the morning that Barbara was unable to appear because of her brutal murder. I still just don't get the DNA thing, uh, like the DNA under her fingernails being of Hamburg lineage. Like yeah. that still, I, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily put the hitman theory behind me. Because I think it it's definitely potentially valid. But let's also remember that as far as cases we've covered and personally researched, hitmen don't usually like brutally beat and stab people to death. They usually have like a cleaner modus operandi, you know? Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. But Yeah, so uh, to me, it, it just doesn't really feel like to me a hitman would go and do this outside in such a brutal fashion and then hide her body in such a bizarre way. Right, in the daylight In as the well. daylight under couch cushions. Like, it's just, it just weird to me. It does not click with that. It does feel, like, really sloppy, I'll say. Yeah, sloppy. But also, at the same time, it's like, uh, you know, is it possible that DNA could have somehow gotten under her fingernails? From a different occurrence. Yeah, Sure, but it's like, think about how much you wash your, your hands, you know? True, yeah. It just doesn't feel like that would have been under her fingernails for, I mean, unless she wasn't scrubbing her nails, you know what I mean? But sure. I don't know. It's just that really sticks out to me personally. Well, actually, one comment on a discussion forum about this hitman theory even accuses Conway, who again is Barbara's sister, of having hired a hitman in the past to kill her sister. But the craziest part about this is that Conway even admitted to this. So here's what happened with that. Um, in an interview with Conway, she admitted that back in 1996, so 14 years before Barbara's murder, Conway herself was battling substance misuse. And this is what she said in a direct quote. I was out of control and Barb knew it. She took me to court. And during this time, the Hamburgs actually took in Conway's son, Tyler, to live with them because Conway was evicted from her house. But for whatever reason, Conway was not happy about this entire situation. So here's another direct quote from her from an interview. It says, My ulterior plan was to get all my money out of my 401k plan and get revenge against my baby sister, your mother, your father, and both of you, even Allie. This is, uh, she's saying this to Madison. So she is telling Madison she wanted to get revenge on him, on his sister, and on his parents. 
And the quote continues, I was so messed up, I didn't know what to do. I was so angry, my whole family wasn't speaking to me. And then she went on to basically explain that she asked everybody she came in contact with, essentially like total strangers, bartenders, cab drivers, how she could hire a hitman. And eventually she was able to put enough money together and had arranged a meeting with a supposed hitman. And she had rented this hotel room in Orlando, Florida to meet with this person. But once they met and she started drinking, she had blacked out and she woke up, quote, naked and penniless. So so basically she tried to hire a hitman to kill her sister and then she just got robbed. Yeah, she got robbed. Exactly. So then... Uh, to this, she says, quote, I'm not proud of that, like proud of trying to hire somebody to kill Barbara. But she like blatantly admits that this is something that she was trying to do. And even after this, Barbara took her sister Conway into her home to give her a place to live while she was going through this detox situation and also while she was experiencing a lot of health issues. So Barbara did a really good and nice thing here, despite what Conway had planned for her. Yeah, and this is this is obviously very alarming because who in their right fucking mind hires a hitman to kill one of their siblings? Like, she just cannot be trusted. I, I agree. And obviously, then we have to go back to the fact that Conway was the one that found Barbara. And exactly. allegedly thought that she was an animal originally, even though that just feels kind of weird. Why would there be a dead animal under couch cushions when your sister is missing? You and know, also, I got to say, animal hair is very different from human hair. It really is. And of course, she was a person of interest. Like we said, the entire family was questioned. And she told investigators even that she had tried to hire a hitman in the past, but said that in Barbara's actual murder, she had nothing to do with it. So she is claiming innocence, but it does feel hard to trust her. I mean, absolutely. But the craziest part here is that there's so many fingers being pointed in so many different directions because Conway had a theory of her own. And that was that Barbara's own daughter, Allie, had murdered Barbara. Now, while there was little evidence to support this claim, Conway says that Allie's relationship with her mother was strained at the time. And it's possible that Allie, being a young and volatile teenager, had killed her mother in a fit of rage. Right, so her kind of theory would be that before she went to school that day, she killed her mom and then left... Yeah. But it just kind of feels like, what? Sort of feels like deflection a little bit, you know? I, I would agree with that. So after Barbara and Jeffrey's divorce, Allie initially chose to live with her dad, which Jeffrey remembers actually hurt Barbara's feelings. Now, finding him to be too controlling once she lived with him, Allie changed her mind and wanted to move back in with her mom. Jeffrey explained that Allie was suffering from both a borderline personality disorder and Graves' disease, which is an autoimmune disorder, and attributed the decision to her apparent unstable mental and physical health at the time. When Allie did move back in with Barbara, Jeffrey accused Barbara of coddling Allie to ensure that she didn't move back in with Jeffrey. And Conway actually agreed with this assessment, claiming that Allie was, quote, abusing alcohol, drugs, and boys. Conway claims that Allie may have been erratic enough to have gotten into a fight with her mother that was so violent that it ended in murder. 
While Allie acknowledges that they didn't always get along, she swore she never would have hurt her mom, saying, quote, Mom was so good to us. I think that in my crazy teenage years, I might have taken advantage of it. She believed in us even though we were filled with problems. She believed in us. I wish she was still here, but I definitely feel like she's still with me. After graduating high school, Allie left the United States for a break from the very bleak circumstances that her family was dealing with and decided to go backpacking through South America. But while she was there, she fell in love with Argentina and also met her husband, so she moved there permanently. In their recorded conversation for the documentary, Madison tells his sister Allie that he's proud to be her brother. Madison has also been very open about his substance abuse, leaning heavily on opiates to cope in the aftermath of his mother Barbara's death, saying very frankly, quote, I was acting out a lot. I've gone to rehab twice. My whole family is in recovery. But despite all these fingers being pointed in so many different directions, I also want to talk about another theory. So it was mentioned in different articles that I was reading that the day before Barbara was murdered, she was actually at home with one of her friends from AA, and they had seen a man in a ski mask walking through her front yard. So this is obviously very alarming. It was never reported to the police, but I, I do find that very interesting that there was a person in a ski mask like kind of perusing around her property. Yeah, and this is a story that came from one of Barbara's AA friends. So she's the one who started discussing this. Obviously, it hasn't been officially substantiated, but this is what she's saying. So I don't know why she would lie about that. But kind of interesting, you know, this this whole thought that there was somebody probably or possibly casing the house in a ski mask. I mean, that, and then, you know, the next day, Barbara's murdered. Right. So some people think that was this person in the ski mask behind her murder and maybe saw that she was with a friend and decided not to go through with it. Was this person somebody from gifting tables, like somebody who is desperate for money or somebody who had been kind of scorned by this Ponzi scheme and was, for whatever reason, trying to take it out on Barbara? Like that is that is an angle, a possible angle of this case. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of questions regarding this ski mask person. But that is really all we know about this particular situation with somebody in a ski mask. There wasn't uh, anything else that came out or any other real theories around it. Because again, the only person who said this is the AA friend. Um, it doesn't appear that they called the police about this person. So definitely, definitely wonder about that. But Mac, or back to Madison's documentary. So his documentary is kind of like part love letter to his mother and part investigation into not only her murder, but the less than presentable parts of her private life as like a beautiful and flawed individual. The four-part series, which we talked about in the very beginning of this episode in our intro, is called Murder on Middle Beach, and it premiered on November 15th, 2020 on HBO, and it is still up to watch. But unfortunately, even though there was just rave reviews about this and a ton of viewership, it has not been able to get the case solved. Madison says he still doesn't know who killed his mother. When asked outright if he thought it was his father, he said, quote, I haven't exonerated him, but I don't know. The last time they spoke was on a recorded phone call for the documentary. 
And about this, Madison explains, quote, I have still not talked to my dad. I would like to have a relationship with my dad, but it's up to him as far as I'm concerned, because I've bent over backwards to give him every opportunity to participate, to give his side throughout this entire process. And talking to him over the past eight years, the things that he has consistently said is he's been dealt a bad hand and nobody ever talks about that. They all just point fingers. I'm here if he ever wants to take that opportunity. I want a dad, you know? And if he wants to be that to me, unfortunately, he's got to address the elephant in the room. So I'm ready whenever he is. After the conclusion of the documentary, Madison's next goal was to obtain the case files containing pertinent information regarding Barbara's murder. But with the documents sealed, the Madison Police Department was not budging on the issue. In October of 2022, Madison posted an update on Instagram that read, quote, in two days, the Connecticut Supreme Court will hear oral arguments about whether or not to release case files pertaining to my mother's homicide, more than three years after our initial request. Back in October of 2020, in compliance with the orders of the Freedom of Information Commission, the Madison Police Department turned over a number of files to me and my team, claiming this should be everything. Upon closer examination, files and records seemed to be missing from what was given to us. We made a list of what we could ascertain was missing and requested these files from the MPD. The MPD then appealed the release of the records altogether, and in their appeal, admitted to withholding the most important pieces of the case file. They said that they would comply and told us that they were giving us everything, only to admit that they lied and withheld information. Why? Their appeal went to the Superior Court last year, which ruled in favor of releasing the files. Then it went to the Appellate Court at the end of last year. During mediation in the Appellate Court, the Connecticut Supreme Court decided to take the case. Two days from now will hopefully be the end of a three-year-long endeavor for the truth. It's been 12 and a half years since my mother was killed. I've been told by officials time and time again that this case is cold and investigators are stuck as recently as May of this year. As her son, I want to know what was and wasn't done. I want checks and balances. I want to trust the people in charge of her homicide investigation. And most of all, I want her case solved. After a certain amount of time, the release of information can only enhance the chances of a cold case ever being solved as stated in the Superior Court decision. What's in it for the MPD to act this way? While it took almost three years since the release of the documentary, Madison was finally awarded access to the files, and he and his team have been dutifully poring over the information. However, he's also careful to honor the delicate nature of the material and the fact that it is still an ongoing investigation, saying, quote, this stuff is on the cusp of being publicly available. That comes back to the unique part of this. I don't want pictures of my mom's autopsy on the internet. While a season two has not yet been confirmed, Madison says he will continue the investigation whether or not it's on camera. If you have any information about the murder of Barbara Beach Hamburg, you can submit a tip anonymously at barbarahamburgtips.com or by calling the Madison Police Department tip line at 
6591. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And on Friday, we'll have a new case for you guys, an all-new case for you guys to dive into. Yes, and um, if you guys have theories or thoughts on this case, as we always say, um, we love looking at all your comments on our social accounts. So um, head on over to our Instagram at Going West Podcast, Twitter at Going West Pod. And we're also on Facebook. We have a discussion group, which is a private group that you can join. And Heath and I jump into conversations a lot or just our regular Facebook group. That's also where you can find photos of every case, including this case, um, in case you want a visual. And also, don't forget, if you want more episodes of Going West, we have our bonus series called Real Crime. You can find that on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Going West Podcast. Or if you're an Apple user, those will be um, in our main feed, but you can subscribe right there on Apple Podcasts. And that is just bonus episodes. We do two a month over there on Apple and on Patreon. Um, if you guys want to check that out, that's also where we do a lot of international cases if you're interested in that. So thank you for checking in or checking it out. Thank you for listening and we will see you next time. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.